What does rock bottom look like? When you hit the lowest of the low. Here's one example from Joseph Stoll's book, Shepherding the Church. It was tough for John G. Payton when he, with his young wife, left the British Isles for the new Hebrides Islands, where no missionary had ever gone before. It was tough to hear the captain of the ship that took them ashore tell them they were foolish. Tough to land on that shore with no support network, no friends, no manuals on proven missiological principles for reaching cannibal-infested islands where no white man had ever been. It was tough to live in a camp on the beach wondering how they would ever penetrate the jungles, the villages, and the hearts of the natives. It was tough when his wife gave birth to their child and died in childbirth along with the baby. It was tough to sleep on their graves every night lest the cannibals come and dig them up. Now there are some details that are a little bit off here. Uh, there was actually a white man who had gone there before and John G. Payton's wife actually died 19 days after childbirth from a tropical fever and just over two weeks later is when his newborn son died. But the point is, here is this man on an island full of cannibals who want to kill him, alone, sleeping on the grave of his own wife and child. So often we hear of people who hit rock bottom and that's where they turn to Jesus. That's where they surrender to the Lord. But what about those who know him already? I've surrendered to you, Lord. I, I obey you, Lord. I live for you, Lord. Why am I suffering? For King David, his grievous sin was the cause for a lot of his suffering. For us, suffering might have nothing to do with our sin. But I want to talk about how we should have a, a similar response in the face of suffering. David loses his little boy, his newborn son, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. David messed up. He messed up enormously. And we'll definitely talk about that once we get into 2 Samuel. But he was still a man after God's own heart. And we see that, that here, that even after God takes the life of his own son, he still goes to the Lord and he still worships. Today I want to talk about worshiping God even at your lowest points. Even when you feel you might be at absolute rock bottom. In everything, give thanks. Everything, including even your times of suffering. Even when you're in the worst place you can be. That's what I want to talk about. And so we're going to start by reading just one verse. Proverbs 17, verse 3. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. Lord, 
You are a good God. You are, and I just pray that you would help us to see that in this sermon, in the name of Jesus. I thank you for the goodness that you've shown us. I thank you um, for your word that teaches us about you and how you have shown us great, great love despite what we, we may think. Um, and God, I just want to pray that you would be with me as I speak this morning. Um, yeah, be with me. Be with all who hear this message as well. Give them understanding of your word in the name of Jesus. Be working in their hearts in the name of Jesus. Help your truths to be remembered in the name of Jesus and believed in the name of Jesus. But I pray, Lord, that if I say anything that's wrong or untrue, that that would not be believed in the name of Jesus. I do not want to lead people astray. But again, I thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I thank you, Lord, that you, you give me strength and you give us strength. And I just pray that you would be glorified in this sermon. In the name of Jesus. Amen. When you read about people of great faith in the Bible, you commonly see that they suffer. Joseph getting thrown in prison for something he didn't do. Hosea, whose wife was constantly unfaithful to him. Jeremiah, who knew God and kept sharing his words only to be ignored his whole life and at times badly persecuted. Ezekiel, who, I'll just read his own words for you. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I, I spoke to the people in the morning and that evening, my wife died. And on the next morning, I did as I was commanded. What? At least for us, we don't have that same command. We can still mourn aloud. Godly, godly people, even they suffer. Outside of the Bible, traditions tell us about Isaiah being sawn in two, Peter being crucified upside down. Throughout history, there have been so many brutal martyrdoms, and at times there were those who didn't want to make martyrs, so they would just have Christians tortured so that in their anguish, they would reject Christ. And some made it through all that, one being the church father named Origen, without rejecting Christ. Amazing faith, but amazing suffering. Christians around the world still face such great suffering. There is still death and torture for holding to faith. We might not face that here. We may not be persecuted. But we do still suffer in ways. People lose their loved ones, young ones. Sometimes the younger dies before the older. That's tragic. People still live with constant pain in their bodies. People are born with disabilities where they think, why did God make me like this? What did I do to deserve this? Asaph is someone who wrote a number of the Psalms. And in the 73rd Psalm, we see deeply into his heart when he sees how good others have it compared to him. I was envious 
of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He gets to the point where he feels that living a godly life has been in vain. Why do I even try to keep my heart clean? Why do I continue to strive for innocence? My life is terrible! All day long I am stricken. All the wicked men are prospering and here I am following you, Lord, and my life is dreadful. Life gets hard. And you know it gets hard. There are people out there who would look at some of the hardships in the Bible and say, I'd rather take that. That's not worse than what I'm going through. And they might also ask, why did God allow this to happen to me? Why did, allow, why did God allow this thing to happen to me and not any of these other things? There are things that I haven't even touched on and that I won't touch on that, that are far more horrific than what I've even shared here that have been done to people and the people they love. Why? What have I done, Lord? And sometimes the answer is nothing. I'm not someone who's been through a lot. I haven't gone through what a lot of you have. I don't share the same experiences. I can show you experiences in the Bible and outside of the Bible. I can show you what the Word of God says about suffering. But there are people who have gone through some of the worst things imaginable, and they still trusted this Bible that I talk about. They still trust the word through and through. They trusted the God of this Bible the whole time. In what, be, in what may be the oldest book of the Bible, uh, certainly not the oldest story, but possibly the oldest book written, we find a very godly man who, who suffered, not because he sinned, but because God allowed the devil to test him. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased the land. And he's right. Job is rich. It says, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that, his so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, it's unclear exactly where the land of Uz, where Job was from, was located. And it's unclear when Job lived exactly, but it's most likely between Noah's time, you know, after the flood, and before Moses' time. And that's a lot to have back then. Thousands of sheep, thousands of camels, hundreds of oxen, 
hundreds of donkeys, so many servants, and wherever Uz was, whatever land that it was in where the writer calls the east, Job was the greatest. He was the greatest there. So it makes sense for Satan to say, of course, he is a God-fearing man. Of course, he serves you. You made him the richest person. You blessed him immensely. So Satan then says, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and things start happening. Now, now there was a day when his sons and daughters, Job was also rich in the fact that he was blessed with many children. A day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. So, so Job doesn't even really get a chance to process this first loss. Uh, someone else comes right away while he was yet speaking. There came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. This news is all coming to him at once. All his thousands of animals are, are gone, as well as many of his servants. This is a huge loss. Well, at least he has his family with him during this difficult time, right? The family he so cares about that, as the Bible says, he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, the number of all his children, seven sons and three daughters. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. He wanted the best for his kids. He toiled that even if they might sin in their hearts, unseen to him, that there would still be a sacrifice for them. I have to do this for them. They might have sinned in their hearts. I don't want the Lord to punish them. And, and tragically, while the last servant was still speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It's one thing to lose one child that you love more than anything else. And then they're gone. Even if you know it's because you've sinned, like David, when he lost his little son. But Job, Job lost all ten, and he lost them all at once, and he had done nothing wrong. This is how Job reacts. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. What? Doesn't that go against everything in us? My livestock is gone. My servants are gone. My children are gone. But I will still worship. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In our good times, don't forget the Lord. Bless his holy name. 
But still, even in our most difficult times, even where we've come to the lowest of the low, bless his holy name. Satan knows a lot about us. He knows that so many of us in this situation would curse God, would say, you're not good. I don't believe you're good. Satan can do even less to us, and we still might say that. We still might say that even if Satan does less than what he did to Job. Seeing Job continue to be blameless, continue to worship God, Satan goes for more. Again, he comes before the Lord, and the Lord says, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Here is the lowest of the low. Rock bottom. Here is Job, his, his wife is telling him to curse God and die. His riches are all gone. His kids are all dead. And here he is covered top to bottom with horrible sores, scraping them off with a broken pot as he sits in ashes. Later on he says, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as, as a hidden, stillborn child as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. He, as you would expect, wants to die. And not just that, to have died way back at his birth. But he does have a good understanding of God, one that we don't usually have in this day and age. He tells his wife, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Or in another version, shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept, accept adversity? Job understands that we are God's creation, and God can do with us what he wills. And Job the man at complete rock bottom. That's fine. He may be unbearably miserable, and that's probably a great understatement. But it's God, and God can do with him what he wants. Here's one of the most well-known statements. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, 
yet will I trust him. He will still trust God in whatever God brings his way, even if God kills him. God has a right in our life to do with it what he wills. Sometimes he allows bad things to happen. Sometimes he even causes them. I know I say this as someone who hasn't gone through a lot. That's why I'm pointing to Job. But we need to trust God. We need to trust that God. Even in rock bottom. Even in the absolute worst of times. And we need to worship him. Praise him in the good and praise him in the bad. I watched an interview with Johnny Erickson Tata, who became a quadriplegic at the age of 17 after a shallow diving incident. And one of the first verses that was read to her after she found out she was paralyzed was 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Her reaction was, you can't be serious. I don't feel thankful for this. But one of her friends said, it doesn't say you have to feel thankful. Trusting God has nothing to do with trustful feelings. It says, give thanks. Of course, we don't feel thankful all the time in hard circumstances. We likely feel the complete opposite. But that doesn't mean we don't thank God. That doesn't mean we stop trusting him. That doesn't mean he's less deserving of our praise and our worship. Job, who seemed to be crushed under the hand of God, certainly didn't think so. Neither did Jesus Christ himself, who was crushed under the hand of God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was killed in one of the most brutal and painful ways when he was crucified. The, the most righteous and most undeserving of any hardship. He was perfect, 100% blameless. He never sinned. And for God's purposes, still, he was crushed. Now, we know what those purposes were. We know they were for good. We know that he died for our sins so that we can be forgiven of them. If we place our faith in him and what he did for us, both in dying and rising from the dead, then we will be forgiven and allowed into heaven after we die. And for us believers, it is true that in our lives, which sometimes do become unbearable, God is working for good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's just that his purposes in our lives, we don't always see the good that's being worked out through our lives, through them. Because for us, it can seem horrendous. These things that God's using for good, they can seem horrendous at the time. They can seem horrendous for a long time, for years and years and years. We don't always know. But I do hope that in the worst of times, your faith will be strengthened rather than weakened. We read that verse in Proverbs, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. Fire refines silver and gold. It purifies them. But the Lord also refines, right? He purifies the heart. And we sometimes figuratively associate fire with our hearts refining because it burns. It hurts. It's painful. But in the end, we come out purer, holier. In his first letter, Paul mentions what he calls fiery trial. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That's a reason to rejoice. James says, count it all joy, my brothers. Uh, this is one of those times where it can mean brothers and sisters. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So count it all joy. <laughs> That's so much easier said than done, right? Rejoicing in the fiery trial, counting it all joy. One thing we see with the apostles is that there is a sense of worthiness involved with the suffering Christian. Talking about the Jewish leaders who didn't want them sharing the gospel, it says, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced because they had been counted worthy to suffer. They took it as an honor. Going back to Job, God thought so highly of him, right? He knew nobody was going to break him. Not even Satan. Even Job himself didn't know it. But God knew he was up to the test. He was worthy to suffer for the Lord. And thinking back to the refining and the fiery trials, here are some more words Job says in his suffering. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. I shall come out as gold. If you are someone who holds to faith in Jesus Christ, and suffering and trials come that you may not have even imagined possible. You will come out as gold. Our faith is so important during the worst of times. And again, we see why with something Job says in the midst of absolute rock bottom. He says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, good news, they are. <laughs> oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last... He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. He looks forward to the day he will see the Lord, his Redeemer. And for us believers who are in the midst of the worst of the worst. We have a Redeemer who lives. We have a Redeemer who himself suffered and died for us. Not so we would have no hardships in this life, but that we would be purified. That we can live eternally with him in glory. 
And I know the story of Job ends so well for him while on earth. You know, I know he gets double his livestock. I know he has 10 more children like before. Even in the story that we read at the start of John G. Payton, his missionary work would bring people to Christ and he ended up getting remarried. But he still lost his wife and son. And Job would never get his first ten beloved children back ever again. For Joni or Johnny Erickson Tata, she's still quadriplegic. Origen made it through the torture, but he passed away from his injuries less than a year afterward. Our time on earth, it may not have a happy ending. For a person at the end of their life suffering from ALS, for example, are things going to get better here? Our lives on earth can get really, really bad. What if they never get better? We still have Jesus and we have him forever. Our Redeemer lives. When we read about heaven in the end of Revelation, it says, He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The former things, death, mourning, crying, they will be gone forevermore. We have that to look forward to in our next life. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. We look forward to the things we don't yet see. This life might be so hard on us, but the future we don't yet see, it will be an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This affliction, it's momentary in comparison. It seems long to us, it sure does. Time does not fly when you're not having fun. And this life is all we've known. So for us, it seems like it's everything. But it's not. We have life afterward. We have life eternal. We have life in God's perfect heavenly presence that's awaiting us. In the worst of times, we have hope. We know where we're going after this. So in everything, give thanks. In everything, praise God. Because our story does not end here. Even if our lives don't have a happy ending, they don't end on this earth. We have something greater waiting for us. But you're right, while we're here, 
there are times where it sure gets hard. There was a missionary pilot and his wife who were kidnapped while in the Philippines, Martin and Gracia Burnham. I remember reading about their story when I went to the Philippines, and then years later during my internship, I read it again. I even met Gracia because she spoke at my college. They were a couple that were held captive for a year by an Islamic group who took them through the jungle as hostages. During that time, they would have been facing you know, so many uncertainties, right? Of ever being freed, of ever seeing their three kids again, the uncertainty of even remaining alive, right? Sometimes they would all of a sudden find themselves in the middle of a, a, gun, ma- a gun battle. Um, yeah, there would have been fear. There would have been sorrow, especially when you start to believe that you'll never get home, that you'll never see your children again. When another one of the hostages who becomes a friend to you gets killed. But at one point, Martin said to his wife, Gracia, let's remind ourselves of what we know is true. They turned to passages of scripture that they had memorized and they recited them to, to one another. And throughout their captivity, God's truths kept them strong. The booklet I read during my internship said that recalling the truths of God kept the couple anchored when they were constantly commanded what to eat, if anything, where to go to the bathroom, and where to sleep. Martin was always chained to a tree at night. God kept the couple anchored. In the worst of times, they turned to God. And he strengthened them. And that's exactly where Gracia turned in the midst of her great hardship. You see, the way their captivity ended, the way their captivity ended, was after a year there was another gunfight that happened. The 17th gunfight that the couple had been through. Gracia was hit by a stray bullet. But it hit her thigh, and she survived yet another gun battle and was rescued. Martin, on the other hand, was killed by stray bullets. The ones that hit him were fatal. He never did get home. He never did see his children again. And Gracia and the kids wouldn't get to see him alive ever again either. So far, I've talked about how we should hold to our faith and praise God even in the hardest of times. But it's true that we're not going to be able to do that without help. We're not going to be able to do that without help. Martin had written a passage out on an index card that Gracia now keeps in her Bible. From his NIV Bible, he wrote down 1 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9, which says this. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Faithful. Martin and Gracia were leaning on a strength that was not their own. Gracia still leans on it day by day. And we too should lean on this same strength, the strength that God gives. When you hit the lows of life, and you don't have you don't have what it takes to get through rely on god rely on his strength 
Rely on his word. So that even when you don't feel thankful, you can thank him. And even when you don't feel any urge to give praise, you can praise him. Even when you find it so hard to trust, he can help you through it so that you can trust him fully. Even when you're at the lowest, you can go. You've been counted worthy. And through this process, this, this burning, scarring, painful process, like Job and so many others, you will come out like pure gold. And in the end, when God finally takes you home, it will be perfect. It will be forever. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, you are wonderful. We don't see that always. We don't feel thankful always. We don't feel like praising you always. There's some hard things, unspeakable things that happen to people. You know it. You see it. Sometimes you cause it. But let us be like Job. Maybe not in the depths that he sunk to, the hardships that he had to face. I don't wish that on anybody. But let us react how he reacted. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though you slay us, yet will we trust you help us too. Help us to rely on you for strength in those times, Jesus. Thank you that you are a comforter as well, that we can go to you with our burdens and that you are a comfort. Thank you that you care. Thank you that you find us worthy to go through certain things. Let's not seek them, but if they find us, help us to trust you. Help us to thank you. Help us to praise you even in the worst of times, Lord. And in the best too, let us not forget you when things are going really, really well because we tend to. Let us always praise you. Let us always trust you. Let us always thank you. Help us all in all those ways. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm going to finish by reading Psalm 73, that same psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. 
Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You give me your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen.